0: Maybe it takes a girl from Wisconsin to fully appreciate the unique cheese culture of France. That's where you can find hundreds of small towns that produce a distinctive local
1: cheese. This lovely little village, it's still sort of within its medieval footprint, and French tourists tend to go there, but American tourists don't.
0: Kathy Lyson returns to travel with Rick Steves with a guide to the cheese-lover's paradise of France. But as Sarah Turnbull discovered, to really appreciate the country's traditions and social codes, marry a Frenchman.
2: I think we can sometimes forget that it's very difficult for the other partner as well, because for the first time, in in Frederick's case, he was seeing his country through someone else's eyes.
0: And an American explains how to best visit the kind of remote villages in West Africa where his forefathers lived.
3: If you follow the etiquette, you're welcomed and you're invited to stay and eat, and if you want, even
0: come and stay the night. Whatever you need, they'll provide it for you if they have the means. We are falling in love with life from France to the Ivory Coast in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. France is certainly one of the most gallant cultures in the world, where a love of beauty and tradition includes a fondness for artisan cheese. They even have a proverb that says, a meal without cheese is like a beautiful woman who only has one eye. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In just a moment, authors Sarah Turnbull and Nina Sovich tell us about the cultural surprises that arise when you marry a Frenchman. And a young African-American clothing designer shares the discoveries he's made experiencing his family roots in Nigeria, Ghana, and the Ivory Coast. Let's start with a return visit from Kathy Lyson. She guides us deep into rural France, where enjoying the local cheese is a part of the fabric of daily life. Kathy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how could a culture say, a meal without cheese is like a beautiful woman with only one eye?
1: Yeah, well, the French are incredibly passionate about their cheese. And it's funny you brought that saying up, because one of the things that really struck me, I spent a lot of time, of course, traveling around France, tasting cheeses, and I also spent a lot of time while I was doing that staying in B and Bs because there weren't I was in often very remote places where there weren't a lot of hotels. So I was staying in the homes of French people and they would sort of go, Okay, so and why are you here, <laughs> strange American lady, out you know, out in this little hamlet where no one ever comes? And I would explain what I was doing, and they would invariably pull a cheese plate from their refrigerator. You know, it's just every French household has this this tradition, this ritual, this thing that they do every day, which is to eat cheese, they eat cheese after every evening meal. It's it's really quite extraordinary.
0: Were you wearing your cheese head from Wisconsin?
1: I was not. <laughs> I do, in fact, own one. I I don't like to admit to it. My my partner's uh, sister sent me one as a joke one year at Christmas. But no, I was I was fairly incognito. I was I had rental cars typically because again I was going to such out-of-the-way places. I was going to places you couldn't get to by train.
0: Kathy, when you went to these B&Bs and you told them what you were doing, what exactly did you tell them you were doing?
1: I said I was writing a book about French cheese and that it was to explain to Americans the history and culture of French cheese. I think, you know, in this country, we have a lot of new artisan cheeses, many of which are based on French originals, but people often don't know the history and culture behind those cheeses. And that was what I really wanted to get across in the book.
0: So you know Wisconsin cheese, and you know cheese that's produced in America. And then you went to France, and what happened? How, how is French cheese compared to American cheese? Why is it a big deal?
1: When I was a kid growing up in Wisconsin, we basically had your average orangey kind of cheese. That was, <laughs> that was what we ate, and so the whole thing was really a new adventure for me in tasting really good cheeses.
0: Are you saying that America is pretty simple? It's just going to be orange American, orangey cheese, and in, no, in Europe it's no. more sophisticated.
1: Absolutely not. No, the American cheese scene is really, really happening and really exciting. But again, it is based often on French originals. So, for example, there's a wonderful cheese in the um, French Jura region called Mont d'Or that you can only get in the wintertime. Um, and it's a soft cheese. You just have to sort of, you can break into it and eat it with a spoon. And there's a very similar cheese um, that actually won the American Cheese Society um, contest this year. I think it was the best in show award called Winnemere that is based on that cheese.
0: So would that be just as good here in the United States, or is there something about the old world cheese that really is the ultimate?
1: Hmm, now you're going to get me in trouble. (laughs) They're different. They're both good in their own ways, I would venture to say. So much of cheese has to do with where it's produced and what the animals whose milk they're using to make it, have been eating. um, And it really goes back to terroir. And the terroir here, of course, is not the terroir you have in Europe.
0: Now, that's what I was thinking about. And I haven't heard terroir in the context of cheese because, of course, we generally think about that in in the sense of wine. But why not? Terroir is the culture. It's the sun. It's the soil. It's the history, the heritage. Tell us about one moment when you were in France and you realized, wow, this is really the ultimate for Old World cheese culture.
1: I had a wonderful experience high up in the French Alps with a cheese called Beaufort. They make lots of cheeses in the Alps, but this one is in particular is made very high up, and it was traditionally made in the summertime. They make them in these little cheese chalets called alpages. And I was traveling with a friend, and she and I uh, was very early on, and she and I didn't really know what we were doing, but we had this cheese map. Different regions of France have cheese maps, and we saw this address on it and thought, well, let's go up there and didn't realize it was going to take us about an hour and a half, two hours of driving up this tiny little mountain road (laughs) to get to the top of this mountain. But at any rate, we made it up there and discovered this man who is um, making a cheese all by himself, essentially, in this great big copper kettle. And what they do with Beaufort, it's a very large cheese. It weighs over 100 pounds. It's about as much as a small St. Bernard. And they have to pull the curds out in one swoop or at least they try to. So he takes a cheesecloth and he leans over the edge of the kettle and balances on the edge of the kettle and then has a piece of metal in one end of the cheesecloth that allows him to swoop the cheesecloth down and under the curds in the kettle and then pulls that up and swings it over to his cheese mold and plops it down in that. And it was it was really a wonderful thing to see that cheese sort of hmm. being born in the Alps that way.
0: It sounds almost like a romance. You're, you're in France and you had a wonderful experience high in the Alps with Balfour cheese. It sounds so like a a dream come true if you're really into cheese. Take us into that alpine farm and give us the very simple basics of making cheese for rank beginners, just like in one minute. How do you make cheese?
1: Cheese has three basic ingredients: It's milk, rennet, and salt. And making a really simple cheese is in fact quite simple. I've had friends who've done it at home. You just sort of cook the curds a little bit, and you can make a you can get the curds to set up pretty easily. And that's really about it. The curds are kind of a blank slate. And depending then upon how long you age it or what other things that you do to it, if you press it or cook it, all sorts of different things, that's how you end up with so many different types of cheese.
0: Now, when you go to France, you're actually able to see the variety of the cheese making because that's the, the fundamental way you make cheese. But how would that change to distinguish cheese from Normandy compared to cheese from the Alps?
1: Yeah, cheeses in Normandy, sort of the main cheese in Normandy that people are probably familiar with is camembert, and it's what's known as a pat mole. A pat is the what we call in English the paste of the cheese or the, the stuff that's inside the rind, and then mole just means soft. And it's a soft cheese because they're lower, of course, in Normandy, and they didn't need to have a big, large, hard cheese as they would in the Alps to get them through the winter. So the cheeses that are lower tend to be smaller in size, and they tend to be, have softer rinds. That's not to say that they don't have cheeses with soft rinds in the Alps. They do. But, again, you don't get the huge mountain cheeses in the lower regions that you, as you do in the Alps.
0: Kathy Lyson's taking us to some of her favorite places to savor the many distinctive cheeses in France right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Kathy's the author of The Whole Fromage. It's published by Random House. You know, Kathy, looking through your book and, and talking to you, it seems like, of course, you're over there learning learn about cheese, but at the same time, you were learning about French culture. You wrote that uh, you're actually experiencing France through the culture of its cheesemaking and cheesemakers. How did you learn about France by getting to know its cheesemakers?
1: You know, I think the most extraordinary thing about getting to research this book was driving around France. I never would have gotten in a car, and I believe I was in pretty much every French region, and I never would have done that had I not been researching the book. And that, to me, was really wonderful to get to see all of the different, there are different types of houses in different French regions, and then they have the different types of cheeses, and also to experience how incredibly warm and wonderful the French people are. I think the French people sometimes get get a bad rap. People go to Paris, and and people in Paris can sometimes be sort of grumpy, and (laughs) it's a large city like New York City. But get outside that big city, and the French people, especially when you go up to them and say something like, teach me about this piece of your tradition, I want to know about cheese they're just incredibly warm and welcoming.
0: So maybe there's a, a tip there for travelers just to have a mission. I mean, you've got your cheese map. You don't just have a map. You've got the cheese map. And that gives yes. you an excuse to, to go off the beaten path and meet people that don't have to deal with tourists all the time but that have a passion for something that uh, they're proud to show off. Absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with uh, Kathy Lyson about the whole fromage. Our phone number is 877 By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. And Patrick, in Indian Town, Florida, emailed us, and Patrick writes, in every country we visit in Europe, there's always some special food we eat a lot of. And in France, of course, it's cheese. Whenever we come home, we really stock up. My wife likes Roquefort. I like Benin. But the simple cheeses like Camembert and St. Andre, they're good as well. <laughs> so can you bring cheese <laughs> home from your travels? Did you bring souvenirs home as cheeses?
1: I did, yeah. It's illegal, of course, to uh, bring back a raw milk cheese, a cheese that's been made of raw milk that's been aged fewer than 60 days into the U.S. So uh, that's kind of a no-no, though, from my understanding, is people do it. I didn't (laughs) realize that, though. So
0: there is something you should be aware of, assuming you don't want to get in trouble with the customs people. You can bring home cheese, but not cheese made from what again?
1: It can't be a raw milk cheese that's been aged fewer than 60 days. Okay. So any any kind of fresh goat milk cheese would be a problem, as well as camembert, which is aged fewer than 60 days.
0: So if, if a sightseer is heading off to France and they want to have a couple of great cheese experiences, name three or four, just quickly, cheese experiences you could find around France that stick out in your mind as great opportunities to both learn about the cheese culture and the French culture.
1: There is a place in the marseille Central in central France called Salers, it's a village, and it's this lovely little village. It's still sort of within its medieval footprint. And French tourists tend to go there, but American tourists don't. And there's also a cheese called Salers. And so you can go there and stay in this lovely little village. And there's a place uh, right outside the village where they make the cheese Salers. Hmm. And it's a wonderful cheese. Another place that I would recommend going and that a lot of people don't think of is going to the Loire Valley, where people tend to go for to see the chateau, of course, but it's also wonderful goat cheese territory, and it's great if you want to drive around the Loire and you can drive to the chateaus. And then as you're driving, also look for little signs that say goat cheese for sale, and you follow those down the road, and, and that's really a fun thing to do. And then we were talking about Camembert earlier. Camembert is also – it's an easy day trip from Paris to get to the village of Camembert. Mm. And then right outside that village, there's a man named François Duron who still makes camembert by hand. He's the only farmhouse maker of camembert cheese, and uh, they do visits at that farm as well. So that's a really nice thing to do.
0: And your book is filled with ideas like this, The Whole Fromage. We've been talking with Kathy Lyson. Now, Kathy, when you're back in Wisconsin, after all of this rich French cheese experience, how do you wear your cheese head differently?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because when I'm home, I tend to fall back into eating just sort of sharp cheddar uh, that's kind of my my go-to cheese when I'm at home. And when I'm in France, I tend to eat a much greater variety of cheeses. It's just, it becomes part of my day in the way it does for French people. So I think a lot of it can be very place-dependent.
0: I understand what you're saying. I You know, I, I'm sort of a cultural chameleon like that, too. I, I love a cup of tea when I'm in England, and I love my cheese course when I'm in France. And that's mm. just a, a fun way to travel. Hey, Kathy Lyson, thanks so much, and best wishes with your continued appreciation of cheese and, and sharing with all of us the wonders of cheese, especially in France. Thank you. We'll get acquainted with village life in West Africa in just a bit. Up next, we hear what it's like to marry a Frenchman and live a whole new life in France, where gallantry, formality, romance, and a refined sense of style come with some challenges for the new French wife. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for Promoting Peace, Human Rights, and Democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Once in a while, we meet someone who's had the good fortune to live the fantasy of falling in love with a gracious Frenchman and actually moving to France. But the seductive delights of French culture do come with a bit of a learning curve. Joining us right now to share their stories of a bicultural marriage in France are Sarah Turnbull, the author of the bestseller Almost French Love and a New Life in Paris. She joins us from the Australian Broadcasting Company studios in Sydney. And American born Nina Sovich is on the phone from her home in Paris. She has a blog about her family life in France at TheseStolenDays.com. Sarah and Nina, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks. For thanks, Rick.
0: Now Sarah, in your book, you wrote, "I know of no other country that's so fascinating yet so frustrating." In light of, uh, you know, the the excitement of uh, falling in love and marrying a Frenchman, what do you mean by that?
2: There's a big difference between living in a place and visiting a place. And I think, uh, France is, is a place that we think we know. There are so many things we do know about it. We love the food. We love the wine. We, we love the history. We want to know how they stay thin. We want to know how to, how they raise their kids. And I'd visited France several times before I actually met Frederic and moved there, um, and had glorious holidays as, as a kid and, and as a young adult. But it goes without saying that living in a place is very different from those, the, you know, spending a summer holiday there. And I think it was the challenge for me. What well, was the biggest challenge it was just finding my feet and making a new home for myself, as well as obviously, you know, making friends. And um, I didn't know anyone in France that so was setting up my whole life there. Gosh, I hardly knew the man I'd move there to be with. Um <laughs> So we'd only known each other a month. So there were a lot of challenges at the beginning.
0: And now you've been together for 10 years. You've got Oliver, who's seven years old, and you've written a book called Almost French. You know, the the Frenchmen are famous for uh, la seduction, right? Tell me about how was it that you fell in love with Frederick?
2: We we actually met in Bucharest, Romania, and then Frederick invited me to uh, come and spend a little bit of time in a few days in Paris, And I ended up staying all summer, and then I ended up moving back there to be with him.
0: How is a Frenchman different from an Australian? You
2: grew up, uh, I would imagine, dating Australians, and suddenly you're in, in Paris. And there are big differences. I think one of the big things I'd say is more of a cultural comment, and that is, you know, I think Australia, that the masculine imprint on our culture is very strong, whereas I always think of France as having a very feminine culture. You know, you can be at a dinner party in Paris, and I remember this clearly, where a, a group of heterosexual men will be discussing the fashion shows and the latest looks in the fashion shows and, and discussing that very avidly. Now, that kind of thing that's, um, that's is unimaginable in Australia.
0: For straight men to have a feminine side that they're comfortable showing.
2: That's right. So that's, that, that's one big difference, and I notice it straight away. And I think you see it not only between the differences between, say, men in Australia and and French men, but also more broadly, I think Australians and I'm sure Americans are the same. We're quite pragmatic. We like things to be functional. And if they look good, then that's kind of a bonus. Whereas the French like things to look good. And if they work, then that's the bonus. So I think you can see it in in, in Paris more broadly in, in the monumental beauty of the architecture and the monuments, but also in the beauty and the care that goes into the look of small things, um, the way a box of chocolates might be wrapped and presented, a boutique window. So for me, French culture is quite a feminine one, uh, and it's something I miss, actually, now that I don't live there.
0: Now, Nina Sovich, you're an American, and uh, tell us about your story. How did you meet Florent, and, uh, and uh, how did you get caught up in the, the romance of France uh-huh. and the Frenchman?
4: Well, it's funny because I was never a Francophile. I'd always spent much of my life in kind of hard knock places. I loved the Middle East. I loved Africa. And I was in Boston in graduate school. And I met this, what what I think of as a very dashing young Frenchman. And he was so very different from any of the men that I had either grown up with or I had known as a reporter later in my life. As Sarah said so aptly, he was not feminine, I'm sure he would actually really dislike me saying that, but he was sensitive, I think, to the beauties of the world in a way that was was completely masculine and was also just hugely refreshing. Um, he was easy to talk to, a little huh. bit distant, a little bit formal, and and even gallant. Um,
0: huh.
4: He did things like... <laughs> That's a uh, French that word, I isn't found, it? Gallant. Yeah, no American man... Had, had ever done before. I mean, I think we were on three dates before I even knew he had a mother. He, we talked about politics, and we talked about religion, and we, we sort of talked about the food a great deal. But, but he, had a, he had a distance, and he had a sort of interest in my perspective on the world that wasn't personal. And I, I just loved it, I have to say. I found it sort of, a, sort of like dating somebody from the 19th century.
0: Wow. So that's that gallantry. <laughs> and gallant, I've never really heard in terms of uh, kind of summing up your relationship with somebody else, but there's a gallantry of, about the French culture. And then that's interesting that you mentioned sensitivity. In America, we might call that feminine, but it's, to a Frenchman, to be sensitive is not necessarily feminine. It's just to be sensitive. No,
4: and, it's sort of just to be awake and cognizant.
0: Now, that's a beautiful thing compared to your cowboy. We're hearing firsthand what falling in love with a Frenchman means when you live as a married couple in France on Travel with Rick Steves. Sarah Turnbull wrote Almost French about life with her husband, Frederic. Her latest book, All Good Things, describes the family's move from Paris to Tahiti. They're now raising their son back in Sarah's home country of Australia. Her website is almostfrench.com. Nina Sovich and her husband, Laurent, are raising their two children in Paris. She blogs about it at these com. now Nina when you're when you're thinking about and a lot of women might be listening to this and thinking oh that sounds very attractive but when you marry a Frenchman then you learn what Frenchmen expect from their wives uh, yes. w- were there any surprises <laughs> kind of and, and uh, Sarah will ask you the same question but first of all Nina, were there any sort of surprises once you're married of what is expected when you have this sensitive Frenchman as a husband
4: yes well I, I don't think it's easy work to be a French woman. There's, there's a tremendous culture of beauty here that really filters through to women. It filters through to men, too. Men are very careful about what they eat. They're very fashionable. They look great. You walk down the streets in Paris and you just think, my goodness, the buildings are beautiful and the people are beautiful. But women take the hard end of that, I think. And there is the expectation that you will, most French women work, I think a higher percentage of French women work even than American women work. Many of them have three children uh, for financial reasons, and also the, the government's very generous about sort of helping you with your children and taking care of your children, but they have a lot of responsibility. I came, my mother's Swedish, and I grew up in Connecticut, and I was, you know, my dad always helped in the house, and as much as my husband is a wonderful man and very gallant, it, it, it took him a little while to understand that we were going to be really doing this
0: together. (laughs) You say that with trepidation, even though you're talking to me. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that would be quite uh, a hurdle to broach, I would suppose. Now, Sarah, I was uh, fascinated in in your book, you talked about how your husband was appalled when you went out to the bakery in your sweatpants. Tell us about that.
2: That, um, It's funny, listening to Nina, I feel like we're married to the same person, but... um, (laughs) Because there are so many things that overlap and resonate. But yes, that incident, um, it was right at the beginning of our relationship. So we'd only been living together for a a few months in Paris. And um, I put on a pair of warm-up pants or sweatpants to go out and buy a baguette. And um, uh, my husband, Frederick, looked at me in absolute horror and uh, said, but it's not nice for the baker. Hmm. and uh, he couldn't believe that I would be walking out the door in a pair of sweatpants. And uh, I have to say there's a little bit of a, a postscript to that We've been living in Australia now for five years And uh, Frederic frequently goes to our local bakery now Wearing his sweaty oh. jogging shorts <laughs> So you're <laughs> giving
0: him a little Australian culture
2: Yes, look, I, I mean I think it's lovely to dress up And I've, I've always enjoyed that But I'm, some, I'm very erratic um, And I think I always was in, in, I think Paris did help me sort of uh, To pay more attention to that But I never bought into it entirely I mean, it was something I kind of held on to. Um, um, this is me, and, and I don't have to look good all the time. So, so there was a bit of a compromise there.
0: That's a beautiful thing. You're part of it. And, and looking scruffy would almost be selfish, the way you describe it. And uh, that's a, a different approach to life, I think. I'm uh, Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Turnbull. Sarah's written a book called Almost French about her experience marrying into French culture. And Nina Sovich is an American who's um, married a Frenchman and is, writes a fascinating blog called com. Now, Nina, you write in your blog about the whole lingerie thing, uh, and you actually ah. got to care about lingerie and what, <laughs> like 17% of a woman's clothing budget is spent just on her underwear. Talk a little bit about that.
4: My underwear drawer now epitomizes for me my... Transition to French culture. I mean, I was working as a reporter for a little while and I covered luxury goods for a little while and I sort of got a little insight into the aesthetics of right. French fashion, which isn't actually about how you look at all. It's how you carry yourself and how much self respect you have and how much care you take. And so lingerie, I mean, it, there's still a part of me that thinks no one sees it, who cares? But it is very much a part of the culture here. You know, I, I have French girlfriends. We, talk about it, we think about it, we go shopping together, and you begin to buy into it after a little while. Like, I actually wouldn't go to the butcher anymore in sweatpants either, and now I have nice lingerie, and I feel like it does kind of, it matters to my husband without going into that in too much detail, right. but it does it does sort of matter.
0: I've heard that a good lingerie shop, you would assume they've got a bra lady, just whose specialty is helping you get, get what you yes.
4: need. Yes. Indeed. And she's not pulling any punches about what you need to do to um, make yourself more attractive. I mean, this is an honest woman.
0: And it's not just for young, uh, available, single women. I mean, you wrote very um, vividly about... In the lingerie shop, you you wrote, reach your hand over that sixty year old widow for the half price of a pair of thong, and you might yeah. lose it. <laughs>
4: That's right, and that is, I mean, for all the, the, the difficulties here, that it is a nice place to grow old as a woman because there's never any sense, I think, that your shelf life is is over, and then you might as well just give up. Like you are supposed to fight really to the end for your for your own beauty, for lack of a better word, and that, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to look. 20 at all. You are
2: allowed to get old.
0: But that's an ethic is not to let yourself go. I mean, Sarah, isn't there yeah. a- actually, there's actually a term mm. for it, I think, to make the most of yourself. What is that in French?
2: I think the notion of self-respect and discipline is really important in the French culture and that idea of restraint, I think, as well. That again, you see it very broadly across the culture. You see it in the in the architecture, which for me is a is that mix of um, that balance between uh, romance and restraint. You see it in this in the way people dress. You know, French bon goût is really a balance between romance mm. and and uh, restraint. And then you also see it in the way that. The discipline they use in their self maintenance—that's um, so important. And some of the things that Nina was talking about, and um, the way they won't—they won't snack between meals. They won't. Uh, my husband, who loves dark chocolate, he limits himself to a couple of little squares after dinner. Ah. He'll never do what I do, and that is throw a piece of chocolate in my mouth before a meal, <laughs> or you know, just on the spur of the moment. That simply wouldn't happen. And, and I so related to something that Nina mentions in in her blog when she's confronted with this situation part of her thinks just eat the damn candy and uh, <laughs> so and weird. i how many times have i thought you know watching my husband just eat the damn chocolate
0: just eat it but but there is that <laughs> discipline I, nina you wrote in your blog quite interestingly um about how, you know, both of you come from a very free-spirited culture, Australia and the United States, and there you're dealing with this rigid and perplexing code of life where, where especially among women, a lot is expected. You talked about you're expected to be beautiful, have discretion, have a steely cheerfulness, and yet very little is explained. How do you grapple with that?
4: Well, I mean, when I came, I had a very difficult time with it because I just didn't understand the rules. But I think once you understand what the rules are, you understand that you're... You know, you're not supposed to go down to the the butcher in your sweatpants. You're supposed to sort of keep yourself up or keep Mm -hmm. yourself together. Once you figure that out, there is actually not, it's not as rigid as it looks. Like, there's a lot of room for, there's a lot of room for sort of crazy behavior here. There's a lot of sort of Latinate qualities that come out in people. You see people, it's definitely not a violent culture. It's so nice not to have to think about that. But you see people having temper tantrums on the streets. You see lovers quarreling. There's a lot of road rage like there there's a way to express yourself here within certain parameters and if once you figure that out you can pretty much do whatever you want you can i mean i my husband fights with policemen here i mean not habitually but we will argue with the policemen here over pulling me over or, or running a stop sign or something like that in a way i would never do it in the united states mm-hmm. because i think that it is terrifying i would never argue with the policeman there but here it's like it's sort of egalitarian and, and, you know, I know that that's okay. So as I said, like it is structured and it is, there are a lot of rules, but once you figure them out, it's not that bad. And it's not that bad for children either. Like the, there's a lot of rules for kids and that can be hard on on kids, but they also sort of figure out how to worm their way around things.
0: So, Nina and Sarah, it sounds like if you're born into the culture, you grow up, and this all just makes perfect sense, and if you happen to move into the culture or marry into the culture, you just have to um, get get your bearings, and in time, it will make sense to you as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, look, I think that's true, and I, and I think that, you know, when you're in a relationship like we are in, uh, what happens initially is you know, in Frederick's case, he'd never questioned some of these things. So it was tremendously confronting for mm. him as well at first. You know, I was sort of grappling with the social codes. And funnily enough, I think much more than the language. Obviously, the language is part of it. And when I first moved to France, I only had schoolgirl French. So, that, so dinner parties, for example, yeah. were very difficult. But more than the language, it was understanding those social codes and conventions um, that was really difficult. And I think we can sometimes forget that it's... Mm very difficult for the other partner as well because for the first time in in Frederick's case he was seeing his country through someone else's eyes. It
0: sounds like that's part of the intrigue. I mean, you you two were both uh, stimulated and challenged by marrying into a different culture and at the same time your men were probably intrigued by getting intimate with an American or an Australian who had just as many differences and charms from their culture. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Sarah Turnbull, and Sarah's book is called Almost French, Telling Her Story. And Nina Sovich has a fascinating blog at thesestolendays.com. Nina and Sarah, let's just finish with a a little bit of romantic advice for our listeners. Share with us just very briefly one of the joys, the magical, rewarding joys of falling in love uh, with a Frenchman and also a little bit of warning.
4: I think I'd just like to say, like, I think that there's a little bit of a stereotype that French men are seductive or seducers or serial seducers. I don't think that's true. I think that there's a, there's some political figures in France who have mm. a lot of women, but I think that the French men are very family oriented and very traditional, actually, in their heart of hearts. And so I, that's both a plus mm. and a minus. I I don't think that if you are you know, starting to date a French man and things are going well, and it feels like you're falling in love. I don't. I don't think it's a casual mm-hmm. thing for them.
0: I like that. Just commenting on Frenchmen would be in general traditional and family oriented. Mm-hmm. And, and Sarah, what's your thought?
2: I agree with that. Well, I, I would say, given my own experience, probably uh, ditch the warm-up pants, the uh, sweatpants. <laughs> um, that would be one word of advice. And then, I guess more broadly, I would say, don't take things personally because it was a big mistake I did at the beginning, um, and that's when it comes to interactions with other people and when I felt I wasn't having the, the social success that you know I expected or would have liked and, and, and wasn't making friends with French people as easily as I'd hoped or might have done in my own country. And I took it quite personally, and in fact it's not. You just The longer you stay there, the more you understand, the more you see the context, the more you see that it's not because you're a foreigner, it's not because you're you, it's just the way things are. Nina
0: Sovich and Sarah Turnbull, bravo for the, the courage of, of jumping into another culture, and congratulations for putting together what seems like beautiful lives with, with great families and, and caring husbands and, and best wishes. Thank you so much for sharing with us today.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Rig.
0: It's not just the French who appreciate fashion. Up next, a clothing designer from Seattle tells us how he discovered the power of his roots in the villages of West Africa and incorporates that into his designs. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. He was raised in Seattle by Nigerian-born parents, but today, Ameka Alams divides his time between Seattle, New York, and West Africa, where his fashion line at Gold Coast Trading Company reflects the style and substance of what he's learned about his African heritage. Ameka, thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. Oh, thanks for having me. You've spent, like what, 10 years in West Africa, but you grew up in Seattle. What was it like for an American guy of African heritage to go to Africa? What were your preconceptions? What were your discoveries?
3: When you grow up in the States, you definitely have a certain image about Africa, what it's like and how it smells and the wars and all this stuff. And even growing up with a Nigerian parent, I still had a little fear of Africa because it was always used as a tool of discipline. Like, if my grades didn't improve or if I kept acting up, I was going to get sent to boarding school in Africa. So there was a bit of, like, trepidation going, but then arriving there, it totally changed my perception of Africa.
0: So your parents came from Nigeria to the United States, and they're raising you here— Kind of aggressively saying, "You better be good. You better embrace this culture, or we're going to send you back there." Pretty much, you better do
3: well in school, get a good job. Be really honest. So, <laughs> growing up, I felt very Nigerian here in but the United States. Here in the United States, uh, my parents raised me as we would have been back home.
0: In your adventures, you went from Nigeria—that's the big country with most of the people—to Ghana and then to Ivory Coast.
3: Yeah, I started off in a. Uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Uh Coast, Mm -hmm. and I spent the most time there, and then later on I had to actually leave Cote d'Ivoire because of some of the civil unrest they're having. So I went to Ghana and spent about a year or so there. During that time, I also went to Nigeria.
0: Okay, let's talk about Ivory Coast first then, because Ivory Coast, it sounds idyllic. Like you were tooling around there like a tourist in a car, making a road trip, visiting little villages, talking to the village chief. I was. Tell us about that.
3: Well, it's funny because up until—I've been going there all these years, but up until this last year, I've never gone on a road trip. And that's something I've always wanted to do in Africa. It just seemed like something that would be really special. So this last time, me and a good friend of mine spent a few weeks on the road. And we would head off to the capital city or further north, uh, cities like Yamsukro and Bwake. And on the way there to these cities, we would just pull off the side of the road, pull up in a village. These villages weren't marked or anything. And can you just do that? You just pop into a random village, and uh, what happens? Sure. Yeah, you can. You pull in the village, and you, you know, first of all, you greet whoever comes out to greet you. You ask to greet the chief or the person there so who there has is the most— there is an etiquette, the big definitely, man in the village. Definitely there's an etiquette. But in general, if you follow that etiquette, and it's really basic etiquette, if you follow that etiquette, you're welcomed and you're invited to stay and eat. And if you want to even come and stay the night, and whatever you need, they'll provide it for you if they have the means. What's that like in the evening in a little village that's
0: never seen an American tourist?
3: One of the biggest differences between Africa and, let's say, the U.S. is time. So before you do anything, just realize it's going to take
0: some time. You cannot. So you be can't be here at two rush. o'clock and there at four o'clock and then drop in here at six o'clock. <laughs> no, <laughs> you can That's what I do in Germany. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a lot different from the very technical ways of Germany. Like, I just spent a month there. Yeah, but yes, be prepared to spend some time, get to know the people and the places, and just kind of explore.
0: So, but how do you do that? Describe the picture to us. I mean, I can imagine the big ramshackle capital city, but you've got a rental car. You're stopping at a town that's got no tourism infrastructure. You're going to speak French in Ivory Coast? Yes. And then you sit down. How do you spend time? What do you say to the chief of the village?
3: Initially, the chief and his family, the other kind of elders in in the village, they all sit down in a circle. There's a long formality of greetings and asking you about this and your travels and your family. And that alone can take maybe an hour. And then when the greetings are done, they'll ask you about what you're doing.
0: Now, you're an an American, and they might not know that right away because you're a Nigerian too, Mm -hmm. but all of a sudden they realize you live in Seattle. What sort of uh, questions are they going to ask you about living in the United States when you drop into this podunk village in Ivory Coast?
3: (laughs) Well, sometimes they can be pretty amazed, like, what are you doing here? Yeah. Most of the time, I feel like it's pretty blasé. They
0: say, oh, okay. So they're not green about this. They know what's going on in the United yeah, States.
3: Yeah. I mean, everyone, it's the funniest thing I noticed when I was doing the road trips was we would go to the tiniest village, but everyone had the nice smartphones and all that stuff. Cell phones are everywhere now. So what's the food like? In the village, yeah, the food is is pretty basic. Right. and you, you eat whatever is prepared. If they're a farming village, then they normally have like bush meat, like bush rat or, you know, some sort of pheasant. Bush
0: meat. I've never heard of that.
3: Bananas and plantains and mangoes and guava papaya, all the, the biggest, juiciest fruits you, you've ever seen all kind of grow really? indigenously. Avocados. So it's like um, a feast. Like a It, like really, feast. it really, it really, really is.
0: So I'm just wondering if, if it would be realistic for me to go down to Ivory Coast, rent a car, And go exploring in the countryside. What pitfalls are there, and what's it like to drive there? What what thieves do I have to be careful about? What are the road conditions like?
3: The road conditions can be pretty hairy at times, but if you are patient, you can get through it, and you'll enjoy wherever you are going to go. And again, just use practical common sense, like you would if you are going anywhere new. Especially, be prepared for to take some time. Be prepared to maybe get stopped at
0: checkpoints. So you got checkpoints in the middle of nowhere.
3: Um, If it's in the middle of nowhere, don't stop, because that's probably not a real checkpoint. But there are official checkpoints in the country, and they do that for security purposes mm-hmm. and to cut down any possible issues you might have traveling on the road.
0: So don't stop if you see a fake checkpoint in the middle of the country. <laughs> if you see some guys that look like— <laughs> They just popped out of the woods. And so they're, they're pretending they're cops, and what, what might they be up to? Would they want to hurt you or just extort some money out of you or take your car and leave you stranded?
3: In general, it, there's nothing to be extremely concerned with besides maybe losing your car or, or a few bucks. Uh, but they generally just want some possessions from you.
0: Money. Money. If some guy comes out of the bushes, stops your car and says, I want your money, and you're in the middle of Ivory Coast, what do you do? Well, you give it to him. And then you just continue on. Without money. So you're just going to be eating uh, giant mangoes for the rest of your time. Yeah, I mean, they're delicious. So you should be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are talking about West Africa. And our phone number is 877-333-7425. Dionne is on the line in Rhode Island. Dion, thanks for your call.
4: Hi, Rick. Hi, Emeka.
0: Hey. Thanks, um- Dion, for the call. Do you have a question or a comment for Emeka?
4: I do. I have a question. I'm African-American, and I'm a descendant of West African slaves. And I'm very much interested in visiting West Africa with my husband, and he's a native French speaker. And I was wondering if you could suggest a specific country. There's so many countries there, but if you could suggest a specific country, that would be a great jumping-off point for us to explore the culture, history, and the natural wonders of West Africa.
3: If it was up to me, I feel like you must go to Ivory Coast being a uh, French speaker and also Senegal, because hmm. you get a contrast of people, a uh, contrast of religion, and you get a really varied look at the landscape of, of West Africa. And then also you have a the history there of slavery as well. So you get to look on that, get to the, the slave castles in the in, uh, in Senegal and and things like that. But in general, the people are amazing and lovely, and they'll be really, really welcoming.
0: Tell us about the slave castles. I know in Ghana there's, what is it, Elmina Castle?
3: Yes. Back in 07 or 08, I went there with a few friends who had come to visit me in Ghana. And we went there, spent the day there, kind of just walked around the castle, saw the different rooms where people were kept. And it was really interesting to me to being like a dungeon and knowing who was there and knowing their eventuality. But then being so close to, because a lot of those people lived on the water. I thought of the feeling that they must have felt being so close to home but kind of so far at the same time right. and then knowing that at
0: that point what their eventuality might have been. They would know. They knew what, what was up for them. They were going to get in a ship and be sent to... The new world.
3: Yes, I mean that was your last. That was your last point of departure. That was yeah. it, the last time you're going to see your home. Your so, family. what what is a slave
0: castle? Is that just a nice word for a prison? Yeah,
3: prison slash fort. It was right. also the fortitude for the colonies, and then it turned into a place to keep uh, slaves. Yeah.
4: When I was in East Africa, I got a sense that a lot of the people there weren't really so familiar with how a lot of the African Americans got. To, you know their ancestry and how they got to America, and I'm wondering because the slave trade was important to the economy of West Africa. What, how do they receive African Americans? You know, today, what is the, hmm. you know, how do they view us? How are we accepted when we go over there?
3: Yeah, I would say that African Americans are received in general very well. People are excited to have people come back and move there and kind of. Realize that this is where they're from.
0: Is there a movement of African-Americans moving back to Africa?
3: There's a movement of African-Americans moving back to Africa, and there's a movement of Africans moving back
0: to Africa. Dion, thanks for your call.
4: Thanks, Rick. Thank uh-huh. you, Emeka. All right, thank Take you care. so much.
0: Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Emeka Alams is telling us how his road trip into the villages of the Ivory Coast deepened his appreciation for his family's heritage. He designs contemporary African-inspired clothing at Gold Coast Trading Company, and his website is before1444.com. Now, you wrote about some surreal experience you had body surfing under the moonlight. Yeah, it was surreal for
3: a few different reasons. One, because it was pitch black, and you're out there on the Atlantic Ocean, just kind of all alone. And then you're doing that in the surf, in the shadow of a slave castle. So... Oh wow! So you you get this sense of freedom. You, this it's like the biggest sense of freedom, just being out there. At that time in the air and the ocean. But then you have like one of a big uh, icon of, I guess, oppression. Or the opposite in, of freedom. Uh, exactly. So you
0: were just thankful you at this this time. Your forefathers could have been in that castle listening to the surf.
3: Yes, it was a very surreal feeling. Uh, in it really uh, strange to see the contrast
0: there's a poignancy there for you that that I could never have,
3: yeah i mean it's it's home like many people, my friends they're irish, they're french they yeah. they they go back to their home, and
0: you know, I go back to Norway, and it's my people and Sometimes when I'm in Denmark or Sweden, I feel like these are my people. But then I cross into Norway and I go, no, these are my people. <laughs> as subtle as that is, it's a huge difference. How would you characterize Nigerians compared... How would an Ivory Coast person characterize a Nigerian?
3: Um, I mean, in general, West Africans I kind of look at Nigerians as the big, flashy, loudmouth bullies. But we're all pretty cool. We're pretty nice. Uh
0: well then, yep. what, what about these scam artists? I keep getting email from <laughs> your buddies in Nigeria. What is with this? I've never had a chance to ask a Nigerian about this. <laughs> you know,
3: I always say that Nigerians are incredibly smart and talented people, but sometimes that intelligence and talent isn't used for the best uh, for the best of means. So it's sometimes almost comical the things that they you get in your email or whatever, and you would think who would fall for this, but. I've seen it firsthand, hanging out in the internet cafes, how these young men are creating little businesses and economies. You've from...
0: seen them working out of their laptops in cafes in Nigeria? Yes. And you yes. see them hit, hitting the jackpot with some idiot on the other end of the... Uh... Yes. It's unfortunate, <laughs> but there is some element of comedy to the whole thing. I'm Rick Steves. We're reminding people, well, if you get an email from some stranger in Nigeria, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, if you get an
3: email from a <laughs> prince
0: or a king of... Nigeria, you probably
3: shouldn't reply.
0: Don't reply. All right. Most of us, all we know about Africa is media images, and that's going to be war and, and turmoil and, and desperate people. Yeah. When you go there, is that is that the image you see, or, or how were you impressed on your first trip compared to your preconditions that were shaped by you being a creature of the media here in the United yeah. States? Well,
3: I'll say that in my time in Africa, I, I've experienced everything from war to hunger to you know extreme poverty. But that Truth is such a minute part of what Africa is and something that you don't experience on a day-to-day basis. Now, true, I've experienced that, but I've also lived there for quite a few times and just have the unfortunate uh, timing of being there when they had uh, certain political issues. But Mm -hmm. other than that, the image of Africa that's fed in the media is pretty much the contrary to what you would go Mm -hmm. and see there.
0: So you've been raised in America. I don't know how wealthy you are here, but compared to people in West Africa, you're probably pretty incredibly well off. What can we learn as Americans? What can you learn as an American going to your homeland as far as what's important in life and so on?
3: I definitely learned that wealth is is very relative. It wasn't until I got there, probably my second year living there, I really saw how all the things I had back at home Anything of material worth was all, it was useless. Because when you're there in Africa, you can see how community, having real neighbors and knowing everyone and talking to your neighbors and the whole interaction that we're missing here. It affects your life and your health in so such that, a different way. That was
0: more apparent to you when you got back, this lack of connection that yes. we have with our neighbors. Yes. Do people just have more time because they're not as uh, driven with their jobs and their careers? In general, people have more time.
3: I feel like people make more time. I know in the evenings, one thing that I always enjoyed was we would just sit down at the table and talk mm-hmm. before dinner, during dinner, and then for a few hours afterwards, we would drink tea or coffee and just talk about the day. And then go ahead and we would just story tell about experiences we've gone through in our lives. And it builds such a strong bond with the family, your friends, and the whole community. It's It's a part of the culture. We had a TV. We barely watched it. We chose to just to kind of hang out and talk.
0: Now I went to your website before fourteen forty four dot com. Yes. Where do you get before fourteen forty four? What is that from?
3: Fourteen forty four was kind of the roundabout year where slavery really started. Okay. Um, that European transatlantic slavery started. After that, that trade started. The identity was kind of lost. So the year 1444 signifies a change of mentality and ideas. So to go back before that and to realize the sort of place that Africa is still today, amazing, beautiful place, minus the issues that Africa has, it it really is a beautiful place.
0: You've got a a clothing store here in greater Seattle? We're based here, and
3: I have stores that carry the product from Japan and Europe and uh, coming soon to Australia and South Africa.
0: When you travel in West Africa, how are you getting ideas? How are you being inspired for your clothing line?
3: Oh, everything. The music, the people, just the general movement of the city. And then, of course, the local fabrics and and textiles there are amazingly beautiful. I, I tried to take those local... Um, kind of textiles and the feelings that I get when I'm around the city and translate them into my own sort of patterns and textiles and produce something traditional but unique and new. What I really want to do is to spark maybe some dialogue, some difference of thinking when it comes to how Africa is currently being seen. Beautiful.
0: Ameka Alams, Gold Coast Trading. Yes. Before1444.com. Thank you so much for giving us a little insight into Western Africa, and good luck with your work. Thank you so much, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Special thanks to Arizona Public Media and the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in Sydney for their help this week. You can listen again on demand, browse our archives, and find guest information in the details for each week's show. It's all in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through France and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Paris and the south of France, Paris and the heart of France, Paris by itself, and the villages and vineyards of eastern France. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.